Well, good morning once more. Please turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Daniel chapter 9. Did everyone enjoy the reprieve last week from apocalyptic, prophetic teaching? I hope you did. I hope it was an encouraging, challenging sermon on prayer that was clear and easy to follow. Because in four verses, that's over. And in 24 through 27 of the passage today, we enter into what has been called the dismal swamp of Old Testament criticism, the passage that defines and even divides church subgroups, and the passage by which many commentaries on Daniel themselves are evaluated by, possibly the most enigmatic four verses in the Old Testament, the 70 weeks of Daniel. Have I talked about the the baseball paradigm for sermon preaching? Have I talked about that before? This is a a walk to first base uh, kind of a text here. I don't want to race ahead, though, because I do want to continue reading on about Daniel's prayer. Having found out that Jeremiah's... Having not found out, I guess in one sense he found out, but having found Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years while he is there in exile, that after 70 years... The people would be restored to the land and the city rebuilt, the temple rebuilt. He's confessed and repented sin. He's asked God to turn his anger away from Jerusalem and the sanctuary, having seen its desolations for the sake of his name. For the sake of his name, Daniel finds this 70 years prophecy and says, Here we are, Babylon's just falling. The end is at hand if the promises are true. For the sake of your great name, God, he prays, he confesses, he re- repents of sin. And in the middle of it, he gets interrupted by an angel. And I could definitely sign up for more of that. I mean, if an angel interrupts me during my prayer, I'm totally okay with it. While I was speaking and praying, verse 20, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. And by the way, let me just pause and say, I mentioned this last time that we were going to see this. He is not a pure mediator. He's He's not just confessing the sins of those people over there. I'm the guy getting it done, praying three times a day, looking towards Jerusalem out my window, and there are the people over there doing this. No, he owns his own sin. He owns his own sin, even as he mediates for the people. He himself needs forgiveness. He says, while I was speaking, confessing my sin, the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen the vision the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Gabriel from chapter 8 shows up again. He's described in appearance as a man, but it is in fact the angel Gabriel because men do not fly from heaven. And it comes at the time, I love this detail of Daniel. He says he came at the time of the evening sacrifice. There hadn't been an evening sacrifice for 60 or 70 years. Daniel's internal clock has never left his homeland and has never left the ways of his God. He has not been lulled into a new normal in Babylon. He could have said that any other way. He came at the time of the evening sacrifice, which hasn't happened in decades. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, 
I have now come out to give you insights and understanding. And we get this incredible verse. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. A word went out. And I have come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. Prayer is whatever we, we can't. We're going to get lost in some very messy things in the next section. Prayer is heard by God and responded to. Prayer is heard. We don't always, always get the peek behind the curtain like this. But God isn't taking vacation days. There's no prayers that aren't heard. At the beginning of your pleas, a word went out. That word going out is language of a divine word going out. The word is what we're going to see in verses 24 through 27. Gabriel has come to tell him the word. I don't know how I don't know the mechanics of how it works and God's I have no idea how it works. But this is behind the scenes, this is a behind the scenes look at God hearing Daniel and responding to his prayer. Prayer is powerful and effective like James tells us, so we should be about it. See last week. But he says that he responds to them because he is greatly loved. God gets where Daniel's at. He sees the righteousness, not the perfection of this man, but the righteous life of this man in exile, finding the prophecy. He understands where I'm at and he's sending him this word because he is greatly loved. And he's going to give his reply in the context of Daniel, again, having found the 70 years prophecy of Jeremiah. And then he's going to expand it. That's key for the context of this passage. Daniel's prayer, Jeremiah 70 years, returning to Jerusalem, rebuilding the city of the temple, is the more immediate context for the reply that the word of, that has gone out, the word of the Lord. And so we enter into the aforementioned interpretive swamp starting in verse 24. Before we dive headlong into the marsh though, I do want to give a kind of summary purpose statement that I think we can all agree on despite disagreement about the details. And there is no lack of opportunity to disagree about the details. What the word of the Lord accomplishes here is twofold. This is the macro summary and purpose. It assures Daniel that God will make good on his promise through Jeremiah, about which he is praying, in light of which he is praying. But two, that the end of the 70 years will not bring in everything that Daniel was expecting. It will not bring in the promised new covenant that Jeremiah spoke about. God will have turned his anger from his people, yes, but it won't be a permanent turning. Iniquity will have been atoned for, but not in a way that brings perfect righteousness. The city and the temple will be rebuilt, yes, but the hope of the people will actually not be in the city and the temple, which will experience distress and destruction. Because eventually the presence of God will come to rest in something or someone else. 
God will make good on his promises of restoration through Jeremiah, but the ultimate hope belongs to a long game. That is the overview and kind of the purpose statement here of the 70 weeks. So with that summary, let's read about the long game. 70 weeks or 77s in Hebrew. And let me just pause and say there's a variety of places uh, in this translation. The ESV usually does a great job. It's an RSV knockoff, uh, but it usually does a pretty good job translating things. There's a couple very poor translations in here. And some of your Bibles, like that NASB, is going to have better translations. Some of the stuff, I'm going to try to call it out, but I don't know that I can do it at every point, okay? 77s. 77s, understood as weeks, are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. So in effect, you can hear God saying, I hear you praying about 70 years, but I want to tell you that the ultimate hope and the final blessing for God's people is actually a 70-week program here. 77s. I hope I've made it obvious so far in our time in Daniel that when we see a number like 77s, and we expect particularly the number 7, we're talking about a period of time over which God is going to accomplish a particular effect or enact a particular purpose without any, without any particulars in terms of chronology and in terms of how many precise years or weeks or months or whatever the case may be. Again, the, the language is literally 77s. It's a long, long period of time over which God is going to bring in all righteousness and fulfill His promise of salvation. And in this case, the purpose unfolds throughout a program containing all six elements described in verse 24. So let's look at them in turn. Let's look at them in turn. First, you're going to see three... Oh, sorry. Kind of shorted you on those. Too bad. Uh, three negative results. Three negative results. You're going to see repetition for emphasis here, so I don't want you to get too bogged down on the precise nuance of each one here. That's why I've bolded the last word. Finish the transgressions to seal up or complete, to put an end to, reach the end of sin, atone for iniquity. So categorically speaking, the first macro purpose of the 70 weeks that would characterize the ultimate hope is to fully and finally address the effects of the fall. Particularly as it has been demonstrated up to this point in the story by the people of Israel, by the sin of Israel. Simply returning to the land will not do this. It won't do it. God said there is this long game, there will be a final reckoning for sin that the morning and evening sacrifices are not sufficient to deal with. That's the first description of the larger, larger program. The second is that you have three what you might consider positive results. The first is it will bring in everlasting righteousness. Oh, doesn't that sound good? It must have sounded great to Daniel, especially a man who was sitting there confessing his own sin and the sin of the people who's in a foreign land that one day there's going to be everlasting righteousness. It's coming. It's coming as a part of this program. The second is to seal vision and profit. Now, there are kind of two understandings of what this could potentially mean. One is that visions and prophecies will be sealed up, meaning that there will be no more 
visions or prophecies in the Old Testament sense of the word at a particular point in time, usually determined to be the, the, the coming of Christ, that they are kind of sealed up and kept back there in the Old Testament and that there are no longer the, the same kind of revelation. There's been a full and final revelation in Jesus and these particular this particular kind of prophecy or vision or revelation has been sealed. It's ended. The second is to, is to understand that to seal vision and prophet carries the idea that the visions and the prophets of the Old Testament uh, would be officially validated that they would be officially confirmed, much like a king would affix a seal to something in order to authenticate it. In this case, it would be like something, it would be something like God authenticating all of the visions, all of the prophecies that have advanced redemption, uh, redemptive history. God would authenticate those. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. Look, sharp folks disagree about precisely what that means. I lean toward the second view. I think it fits better with the overarching context of God's redemptive purposes from beginning to end of this particular program and completing the ultimate hope here. To seal vision and prophet that one day God would put his stamp on everything that had be said, all the promises will be true and hope will be confirmed. That's what I understand that to mean. And then finally, to anoint a most holy. The word place is not there. It is supplied by a lot of your translations, but it's not there. But here's the reason it's there is because when you have that superlative most that is next to holy, it is almost always talking about the holy of holies, which is in fact a place, and therefore they've supplied the word place. But it doesn't say that. It says the most holy, the very dwelling place of God in the temple, the holy of holies behind the veil. But the important thing to note is that this is not a typical sanctuary temple reference. We're going to get that in a second. This is the very particular part of the temple where the presence of God dwelled, but, but it's as though the particular part of the temple, the very place of the presence of God, is going to be anointed somehow, but without the rest of the brick and mortar. Something is going to happen with the presence of God. There's going to be some kind of anointing related to it, but we don't see the structure of the temple and all the rest of it right here. There's going to... The, uh, the uh, most holy is going to be anointed. So verse 24, overview of God's program to bring to fulfillment all of the promises and an overview that doesn't say anything about when in particular or specifically it's going to happen or if they're all going to happen at precisely the same time. It just says, here are 70 weeks and here's what's going to happen within the 70 weeks. Over the course of 70 weeks, to fulfill all righteousness and to accomplish redemption. Okay? You with me so far? Overarching program, six things and a purpose. Everything else in the passage is going to fall within the 70 weeks we just discussed, starting in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem... To the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. But in a troubled time. Immediately we have to make a huge interpretive decision here. A huge interpretive decision. Is Daniel giving us one period of time where a word goes forth and then an anointed one comes? And then there is a subsequent 62-week period.
period of time, and then another anointed one? Or is he talking about one long period of 69 weeks described as seven sevens and 62 sevens? So here's the paraphrase. You're like, Tyler, what on earth does that mean? So look down with me at the text. When you see the end of the, the middle of the verse there, there shall be seven weeks. The then is not there in Hebrew. So this second understanding is there shall be seven weeks, 62 weeks. It shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. The idea is supposed to be, it's not as though there's a word that goes forth and then an anointed and then 62 more weeks and then another anointed. It's talking about from the word, from the time the word goes forth to the singular anointed is 69 weeks described as seven weeks, 62 weeks. Okay. So I strongly favor the first option. And, and the way that it has been segmented. Early church history does as well. But more importantly than what early church history did, trying to describe 69 weeks as seven sevens and then 62 sevens is a very strange way to communicate 69. Very strange. Because verse 26 refers to the 62 week segment by itself. Look at the next verse. And after the 62 weeks, right there, there's no. it's not shoved up against the se- the seven weeks at all. Clearly, it's supposed to be something. I'm suggesting it's supposed to be something of its, of its own. And I would say that having one short and one long period fits the nature of Daniel's prayer well. There, there is a reply to Daniel's near-term request about the return to Jerusalem in light of Jeremiah's prophecy. Okay? So I do favor the first interpretation that there is a word that goes out And then there is an anointed one that comes. Then there is 62 weeks and there is another anointed one that comes. What's the upshot of that? The upshot is we have to identify an anointed one in conjunction with the Jewish return from exile. In order to make the interpretation make sense. Okay? But before that, you might initially think that the going out of the word to restore is is from some earthly ruler or earthly king. But there's large agreement here that the word that went out is a divine word. In fact, that's exactly the same language that is used when Gabriel brings an answer. At the beginning of your pleas, verse 23, for mercy, a word went out. That is language in the Old Testament of a word going out from the Lord. A word going out from the Lord. And it is the divine word that makes effectual the promise that Jeremiah Uh, uh, that was on the mouth of the Jeremiah and that Daniel had been reading. That's actually the real context for Jeremiah 29.11. The verse that everyone, you see, plastered all over everything. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you future and a hope. It's a little different than the context in which you usually hear that, that verse quoted, right? So what I'm suggesting is Gabriel's communicating that from the time God's word goes forth to rebuild Jerusalem in 70 years to when it actually happens in conjunction with an anointed one is seven weeks, is seven weeks. Who then is the anointed one? Well, it sounds like Jesus, of course, but... I would suggest that it is a reference to Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. 
Cyrus the Great, who issues the decree that God's people could return to the land. Listen to the language of Isaiah. Don't take my word for it. Thus the Lord says to his anointed Cyrus. Thus the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that the gates of uh, that gates may not be closed for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen one. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. Isaiah 44, Isaiah says, God is the one who stretched out the heavens, who spread the earth, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Cyrus is the Lord's anointed in Isaiah. And so I'm suggesting that from the time the word of God went forth to restore Jerusalem after 70 years and the coming of an anointed one tasked with doing so, there is seven weeks that coincides with Jeremiah's seven, the end of Jeremiah's 70 years. And we see that fulfillment in the decree of Cyrus in 538 BC. That's exactly what happened. Cyrus, the Lord's anointed, gave a decree and they were released back to the land to begin rebuilding. This is important. I think it's important to understand this because it addresses Daniel's immediate cause of prayer. If you don't have this segmented off, the answer to prayer doesn't address anything Jeremiah is talking about in his immediate circumstance. But as we said, there's much more. It says, then for 62 weeks, it, meaning Jerusalem, shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. The language of the square and the moat sounds odd to our ears, uh, and it's debated in terms of what's actually being discussed here. They're not words that are used very often in the Old Testament, but the gist seems to be this is a totally restored city. All the T's are crossed and the I's dotted with squares and moat is kind of the, there's some archaeological evidence of a trench or a moat and you know maybe that's what's being discussed. But the idea seems to be a totally restored city. And yet, as we already discussed, this extended period of time during which the people are back in the land and everything is rebuilt won't be without hardship. It won't be without oppression, war, opposition. In other words, it will be a troubled time. It'll be the people putting one foot in front of another in the land with a rebuilt temple and a rebuilt city. But it will not be the shalom that everyone was yearning for. Certainly will not be everlasting righteousness. Okay? So, seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then we are going to get to the final week. And what I want to suggest is that we are going to get two descriptions of the final week. So if you're trying to put the periods of time together relative to one another, I would say something like this. We have a relatively short, uh, relatively brief period of time, a relatively extended period of time, and then a clearly climactic time. A clearly climactic time. A relatively brief period of time, a relatively extended period of time, and a climactic time. And I'll just pause very briefly to say that there are some traditions, and many of you come out of them, and many of you perhaps are in some sense are still in them, where there's an enormous gap in between the 69th and 70th week, and that's the gap that we inhabit now, the church age. This is God's words to the Jewish people, not to us. There's a unforeseen parentheses in God's redemptive program 
once the church is raptured off of the earth, then the 70th week happens with the people of Israel, and, the, and that's where you get the tribulation and the millennium and all the rest of it. Okay? Because of the parallelism, especially with verses 26 and 27, along with uh, quite a few other reasons, I simply do not think that is a plausible way to understand it. But you can be the judge of that. Okay? So Cyrus the Anointed brings the people back into the land to rebuild. A long time passes, and then after that, even in, either in the final week or right before the final week, properly starts, it's not clear that it matters. We read this. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Again, I said we're going to get two pictures. We're going to get one that's a lower resolution and then one that's a higher resolution. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. And so here I want to suggest is the great, is the great hope, which sounds odd. It sounds paradoxical, doesn't it? Even after being back in the land, the Jews were hoping for something. They were hoping for someone outlined most clearly by the prophet Isaiah. Because we read about another anointed, not Cyrus, another anointed. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Isaiah says that he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. And upon him would be the chastisement that brought you and I peace. He was, Isaiah 45, 8, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of the people. He was despised. He was rejected. And everything that belonged to him, glory, honor, majesty, was taken from him. He was left without it. So much, not even his clothes. So much so that he died saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nothing. In other words, I'm suggesting here is a picture of the person and work of Christ, the Lord's anointed. The Messiah. Of course, that's what Messiah means, right? Anointed one. We'll return to that in the next verse. That's what happens, it says, after the 69 weeks. And in conjunction with that, we read, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there should be war. Desolations are decreed. Recall, one of the main points is that the ultimate hope is not in the rebuilding of the city or the temple. And the fate of both of those get zoomed in on in verses 26 and 27. Because that's what's in Daniel's mind. I think that's critical for keeping our bearings straight here. Saying this is not the hope. And that's one of the reasons I had a portion of Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse read. But when you, because it corresponds to this right here. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation 
has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out of the country enter it, for these days are of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. This destruction of Jerusalem. Days of vengeance to fulfill what is written. A hard word, but a very clear one there. There will be an overflow or a flood of judgment as God judges His people. Language similar to Nahum 1.8 that with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of His adversaries who will pursue them into darkness. That is what He is going to do to this to this city. We've already read that people will inhabit Jerusalem under times of distress and trouble. We've read about the abomination of Antiochus already in chapter 8. There's no problem whatsoever in believing that from the time of Jesus to the destruction of the temple, that there would be distress and there would be fighting. And of course, historically, the end finds its fulfillment in 70 A.D. when Titus Vespasianus and the Roman armies utterly destroy Jerusalem. Its end will come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. The horrible siege, ghastly descriptions of what happened in that siege. And then the whole thing destroyed. That's the lower resolution. What's the higher resolution then? Higher resolution, final week. This is a super challenging verse. Super challenging verse. But if I'm right, and I've tried to put it up here to persuade you that I'm right, this parallelism, if verse 27 is a more granular teasing out of verse 26, then we have some help. Here's what we read. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. That's probably the verse that I think the ESV translates most poorly. And I'll tell you why as we walk through. The first thing we have to decide is who is the he of verse 27? Everyone look down at your scripture with me. Who is the he of verse 27? What is the antecedent of he? Well, you might initially think that you keep going back in the last sentence. You keep going back. It's the prince. But the problem with that is that the prince occurs just in a prepositional phrase. That's not even the subject of the sentence. The subject of the sentence is the people. It's the people who are said to destroy the city. The people of the prince. Because it's sitting there in a prepositional phrase, it's not even the subject. It's a very poor candidate to be the antecedent. People is plural. That's not the antecedent of he. And so it seems to me that the best antecedent is the anointed one. The anointed one. The anointed one confirms a covenant with many and puts an end to sacrifice and offering. That is to say, the entire sacrificial system, the bloody ones and the bloodless ones. That's the idea. When the anointed one comes, he confirms a covenant. This extremely, the extremely well-known language for make a covenant, to cut a covenant, is not there. It's just not there. Uh, 
the, the reason the ESV adopts this language of the strong covenant, which sounds odd, is because they're trying to capture something about the verb, something like a strong arm covenant or a, a covenant where the person making it is responsible for it. Um, and so it, it isn't, it's not as though there are weak covenants and strong covenants and there's going to be a strong one made. That's not it. The strong is not an adjective. It's, it's part of the verb. It's part of the verb. Um, that, that, that is why most translations, or well, I say most translations, at least half of the translations, the King James Version and the New American Standard, the NET, have confirmed and the rest follow different textual, just kind of uh, riff on different translations. But this is the idea that there is something that is going to be confirmed here. Either way, either way, no matter how you cut the pie on that one. In the context, it seems to be clear. We have our ear to the, the page the context of Daniel's prayer, who he's been listening to, what is this covenant? What's this covenant that's confirmed by an anointed one who is cut off? And I would suggest that it is the Messiah who single-handedly, all by himself, accomplishes the new covenant spoken of in Jeremiah, a covenant that cannot be broken, and in a covenant that accomplishes full forgiveness of sins. In, the, in, in realization of the confirmation of the promises. Full atonement for iniquity is promise of this covenant. And that is a covenant that is made with many throughout the entirety of the final week to the end, you might say. And then we read that the first half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. I would say this is even more misleading, okay? Because the vast majority of translations do not have in the half, first half of the week. It is in the middle of the week. It's in the middle of the week or in the midst of the week, okay? And you can go, you can go read your other translations. It's very in the Hebrew. The Hebrew makes that very clear. In the middle of the week, when you hear middle, don't think center. Don't think center. Think someone interrupted me in the middle of my uh, speech. Someone started yelling and screaming in the middle of the movie. When you say that, you're not talking about where there was this many seconds that elapsed and then right in the middle of you know, the center they said this. You're just saying during this time without any particular reference to where along any particular timeline it is, during this time that happened. That is the gist here. That's what's being communicated. That for one week there will be a covenant made to the end. The final week, that'll complete the 77s. And somewhere in that last week, somewhere in that last week, there is an end to sacrifice. What exactly does that mean? One of two things, okay? The first view is that because of the 70 weeks lays out God's plan to accomplish all righteousness, that the climactic 70th week, we now know, uh, is fulfilled in kind of an already not yet manner. An already not yet manner. The kingdom has come, but it is not fully come. And so this says, well, in the first half of the week, refers to the already part of the kingdom of God that Christ accomplished at the cross. And so you might think that there are certain things that have already happened in the 70 weeks, the return from exile under Cyrus, Christ atoning for sin, for example. But you might think that some things have not yet happened, like everlasting righteousness being ushered in. And so this understanding says, yes, 
There is an already to the promise and then not yet. And, and from the standpoint of Old Testament prophecy, they look kind of right next to each other. But, we, but when we get up there, just like John the Baptist was mistaken about Jesus coming in his first advent to, to bring fire and judgment that was reserved for a later date. So similarly, these things are stacked together. And the first part of this uh, final week, which encompasses all of eternity, is where Jesus puts to death sin, dies or atones for sin, for sin, and the second part is where everlasting righteousness is brought in. That's, that's kind of the idea. The second way to understand it, it starts with the observation that after Christ, after Christ, sacrifices did not end. We're talking about the temple. Sacrifices didn't end. They kept right on going. They kept right on going. Sure, they were worthless. But the temple didn't get destroyed when Jesus rose from the dead. For a period of time, you had two theological generations in overlap. One was a skeleton, yes, but it was still there. You had a time between the temple having come in Christ and the temple still standing brick and mortar. A time where you had Christ, the high priest, but then someone else who was, wore the robes of the high priest. And so on this view, Christ and his work inaugurates the final week, which culminates in the renewal in all things. But in the midst of that week, at some point along the way, he puts a total end to that theological generational overlap and destroys the temple and the sacrificial system in vengeance. So it actually stops them. That's what this one says. This is talking about when they are actually done forever. And in fact, they have been done since 70 A.D. So the first portion of the final week starts with Christ's death and resurrection, extends up to the judgment on the sacrificial system in Jerusalem at 70 A.D., and the second portion is what we inhabit now, awaiting uh, full consummation. Uh, which, one is, uh, which one is it? Again, really sharp folks disagree. Okay, I do favor the latter view. Uh, I favor the latter view that God's promise on Jerusalem Sorry, his promised vengeance on Jerusalem served as a theological middle. A climactic end of the sacrifices undergirding an old, a covenant that the author of Hebrews describes as obsolete and soon to disappear. Suggesting that God was not content to allow the covenant people to continue to presume to mediate before God when His Son already did. I'm just going to let that go on. No. No. The second part of the verse in every translation is actually a baked-in interpretation. Everyone can just admit it. Because the Hebrew is torturous. The Hebrew is torturous. But again, keep in mind the parallels between the, the first and second points here, trying to be persuasive. The only theological background we have for wing, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. The only theological background we have for wing is the wing or corner of the Israelite garment that according to Leviticus 15, they were supposed to put uh, a tassel on 
and they were supposed to kind of attach a blue cord to it, and it was supposed to be a reminder of them to keep the commandments of God and that they were a holy people. This seems like some kind of perverted, distorted inversion of that, where instead of indicating holiness, it seems to suggest abomination, which is a word that means something detestable or something abhorrent before God. That's the idea of, a theologically, the idea of an abomination. Something detestable or abhorrent before God, also language that comes right out of Leviticus. This verse is, unsurprisingly, subject to multiple interpretations. Very briefly, one is that given the immediate context, Daniel's, the last verse that talked about the temple, uh, Daniel's prayer, which see our desolations, uh, last verse, excuse me, that said desolations are decreed, not to talk about the temple though it did. Uh, Daniel's prayer, see our desolations, verse 18 of chapter 9. The, the idea of being desolate, even in chapter 8, referring to the temple itself, that this is just a teasing out of the pinnacle of Jerusalem's distress and tribulations that culminates in 70 AD, its appointed end, with the one who makes that end being Titus Vespasianus. 70 AD, until he himself meets his end. That's kind of one interpretation. Another sees a yet-to-come, at least from our perspective, abomination that makes desolate. Kind of like an end-time desolator that from our per perspective even now is still future. That This is like a reference to the man of lawlessness, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, this end-times man who is, is going to come. It's all smashed together uh, in this particular picture, but this is the uh, ultimate opposer and it will... History as we know it now will climax in the destruction of this uh, uh, this figure. Still, others don't understand why we need to under uh, uh, translate the participle at the end as desolator uh, or one who makes desolate. The admittedly awkward Hebrew is just more indefinite. It's something like the desolate. Participles are hard to translate. You got to do some interpretation to translate participles in Hebrew. Just If you're just going to leave it raw, it would just be something like the desolate. But if you did that, the desolate uh, would be Jerusalem. That's about which desolations have been decreed. Someone is going to come to Jerusalem, and they're going to stay there until they end up destroying it. So what on earth are we supposed to... So the, the, the interpretation that I prefer is a bit of a hybrid. It's a bit of a hybrid here. It's probably most similar to the first. Just take it with a grain of salt. Faithful folks disagree. Many faithful folks disagree in many different ways. But it does find three anchor points that try to say, okay, I'm trying to stick right here in the text. First is the parallelism with verse 26. Okay? The parallelism with verse 26. Second half of 26 destruction concerns the destruction of the city and the temple. Okay. So I'm going to default to that. The second looks at the word desolate or desolations in the passage. Okay, desolations are decreed about the temple, the last part of verse 26. Daniel's prayer, verse 18. See our desolations, even in chapter 8, desolation also refers, all in all, all three cases, refers to the temple. Okay, so I'm in temple space. I'm thinking, okay, I hear desolate, I think something's going to happen to the temple in Jerusalem. And then third, and very few other views make anything of this, 
But it's the abominations that happen. Most views say nothing about, what are the abominations? Whatever you think about wing, what are the abominations? On the wing of abominations. Most views only have these just very vague general answers, but it's supposed to be something that to all appearances coincides with or ushers in desolation. Well, just people sinning. It's like, well, that, that's been happening for years. I've already hinted at my cautious answer to the question. What, are, what is the wing of abominations, plural? I would say that the abominations are the sacrifices and the officers who doing the sacrificing that continue to be made to God for the forgiveness of sin when God's Son has already forgiven sin. When a new high priest in the order of Melchizedek has come and there is someone standing there claiming to be the high priest. When there is now one mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2, but someone standing in the temple claiming to mediate between God and man. Someone publicly holding out the name of Yahweh to the world. And yet, they are in fact apostate. It's false worship. It undercuts the gospel, what they're doing. What they're doing and what they're claiming. The Jews and the high priests just continued right on with their sacrifices, brothers and sisters, after the death of Jesus. It's kind of, usually it's conceptual space that we don't sit in and think about a lot. But that's what happened. I'm going to suggest that the high priest, along with the sacrifices and offerings, these abominations, God is not going to just sit by and say, uh, not a big deal. No, vengeance is promised, Luke 21. There is fulfillment here. And they are literally put to an end in 70 AD where the whole thing is destroyed. Rome, who was present for a generation as they perpetuated the apostate Sadducean priesthood, and Sadduceans were Roman brown nosers so they could stay in position of influence and power, Rome was fine to facilitate that for years and years and years. It came, was fine to facilitate that, and then Rome utterly destroyed them. Utterly destroyed as the strong arm of Christ, I would suggest, came to his people in vengeance. The decreed end of the desolate city and sanctuary. So I do not think that the reference to the desolator is Titus. It is this the desolate understood to be that which was made desolate, the city, the temple. That is a lot. I know that that's a lot. That is a heavy lift. What, what can we take away? What can we take away? Very briefly, I understand. Very briefly. Remember that the main point is to assure Daniel that God will keep his promise by the mouth of Jeremiah, but that final redemption and, sh- and the shalom hoped for was part of a long program, which would require God's people to be faithful and put one foot in front of another day after day, or to steal Eugene Peterson's phrase, a long obedience in the same direction, a Christward direction. One day, God's people would see a new high priest 
perfect atonement for sin. And one day they would see final everlasting righteousness ushered in. In a most holy place, you might say, but not one bound with brick and mortar. For the dwelling place of God will be with man. That's what John says in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The one who was anointed to proclaim liberty to the captives. The holies of holies, but without the brick and mortar. The very presence of God with the people of God. And so, what does that do? It calls us forward. It calls us forward to one more day of faithfulness. One more unimpressive day of doing whatever it is that you do and I do. One more monotonous act of service. One more time coming to the word in prayer and saying, Lord, please fill me. One more occasion of repentance and belief as I continually walk forward to the culmination of the promises. Because all the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, in an admittedly difficult passage, I pray that we do not lose the trees for the forest of what you are doing. That you have begun a work years and years in the making and are continuing that work. That you have atoned for sin. That we wait eagerly for a Savior from heaven who will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. We thank you that the promises are true. Would you help us to pray in accordance with them? Help them to feed our souls and not just be slogans. Help us put our trust in the right person, the right city, the right kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.